you think of as diminishing returns is probably going to be somewhat different. And I feel like it's possible that you're ready to move on from lullaby. I don't know, but um, it's possible. Um, what, so what I thought we'd do is go, th go over it one more time um, and uh, just go over it um, in about five or ten minutes with um, the background that really is background for thinking about it that we have now. Then I want to say a little bit more about lullabies in general, why I think they're interesting. Um, and then let's move to the um, two Blake poems. Um, I, I do. I have one more copy. Um, I think I do. I could be wrong. I think I'm wrong. Um, oh, wait, no. Lullaby, lullaby. Yes, no. Yes! <laughs> yes, no, yes. That's also how poetic meter works. Sorry? No, can you guys look on? Do you do you do you have a copy back there? That you okay. Um, it's easily gettable on a smartphone if you have a smartphone with you. I mean, what? But you can't really take notes on that either. Okay. Um, no, I don't. Sorry, I'm trying to think if there's an elegant way to do this. Um, but there isn't. Okay, so. Um, for Wednesday, I'll put this up on Latte also, but for Wednesday, I think what um, I'm still going to want you to read at the end of class today, so I'll just tell you now, I could be wrong, um, are the two poems called Casa Bianca, one word, C-A-S-A-B-I-A-N-C-A, -A -A -A, as in White House, but in Italian, Casa Bianca. Um, one is by Felicia Hemans, H-E-M-A-N-S, um, and the other is by Elizabeth Bishop. Um, they are widely separated in the Norton Anthology of Poetry, um, separated by um, a century and a half and six, 600 pages or so. Um, the first author? Um, Felicia Hemans, H-E-M-A-N-S. And the second is um, Elizabeth Bishop, who died in 1979, and I think she wrote it in the 60s. Um, so read those two poems. Um, obviously read the, obviously, uh, it may not be obvious. Um, read the Hemans first. Um, it's a very famous, or it used to be a very famous schoolroom poem that uh, fourth graders memorized all the time. Um, now they don't, but uh, they used to. And um, part of what Bishop is doing is um, referring to the fact or expecting that her readership will have memorized this poem at some point. Yeah. Maya. Oh, yes. Yeah. Did you memorize it? Uh, no, but I read it in English one. Which one? Um, both. Both. Okay, good. You um, have it with John Plotz? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you, guys, so you guys know all there is to know about it, and you will talk much. Good. Um, yeah, it's the boy stood on the burning deck whence all but he had fled, um, very stirring, and then Bishop's version is, in my opinion, even more stirring and for better reasons. Um, but at any rate, uh, read both of them. Okay, so um, what we were talking about on Thursday was um, the way, ultimately the way um, the use of the adjective human goes from applying to her in contrast with him to applying to him as well <laughs> Not because he says something like, um, I'm, I'm human too, yo, 
um, but because he says the watchers are human, um, watched by every human love, that is to say all human beings who love, let's say, um, are, are human. All who love, all who watch um, their sleeping beloveds are human. Um, so I think what we should do is read through the poem twice. This is something that uh, we'll also do in Turn of the Screw. Um, I, you, you won't read it twice, but, well, you should. But, um, but we'll think about it as two works written in the same set of words. Um, and um, I'll give you an example of that. What I'm, uh, I'll give you a sort of technical example of that later, but that's not uh, what we need to look at right now. Just think of it as two different works written in the same set of words, a kind of poem length. Um, you don't want to call it a pun because it's not funny, and pun suggests funniness, but a kind of poem length. Um, double entendre. Double, yeah, double meaning. Um, where the question, is it really a double meaning, or do the two meanings actually telescope into one, um, uh, is the ultimate question. So first, let's read it as written to a child, um, lullaby. And just think of her as a child throughout. Um, and I'll just pause to say things, but we'll go through it fairly quickly. Lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. Um, the second line is the one we've already talked about this that brings us up short. Um, what we might um, have expected from the first line, which is a very, uh, it's a beautiful but standard first line, it could easily be part of a song, is something like, lay your sleeping head, my love, sleepy on my loving arm. You wouldn't have that repetition, but something like that. Um, and then we wouldn't be brought up short, but we are by the second line, we are. Lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children. Um, the next thing that we haven't talked about but that's worth noticing is the what's called slant rhyme or off rhyme between from and arm. Um, that doesn't count as a rhyme till the 20th century. Well, it counts as a rhyme for Emily Dickinson in the 19th century. For most poets, that won't count as a rhyme because the R is on the wrong side of the vowel. Um, but to um, minds that are hearing this as a lullaby, you'll actually get um, not only Dickinson, but in Mother Goose, you'll get rhymes like this, slant rhymes, off rhymes like this. Um, they're good enough for hearing as a rhyme, um, even though if you're reading the poem, you notice they're not a rhyme. Um, arm is harm or alarm or something like that. Um, from is strum or come or rum or something like that. But he combines them there. Um, that gives it, that's something Auden is extremely good at, which is giving his poems a kind of diction that you don't expect to find in poetry. Um, Individual beauty is not a line you expect to find in a lullaby. Um, ending a line with the word from is fairly unusual, especially in lulling, short-lined poetry. You, you rarely end lines with prepositions. These are things, I'm, I'm just making explicit things that you know but don't know you know. 
Um, I mean, some of you may know you know this, but um, these are things that, that are effects that pretty much everyone feels. Um, and part of the point of this class is to bring the effects that you feel into um, a sufficient perspective that you can talk about them. Um, it's like when you learn music theory, and everyone can hear the difference between a major scale and a minor scale, right? Does everyone know those two terms? Um, does everyone know those two terms? Raise your hands if you do. Okay, so um, not every human love, but most of them. Um, but when you first, so everyone can hear that difference. Um, it's something that as soon as you twig to um, uh, European musical style, European musical notes, you hear the difference. Um, but to be told where the, what the difference is, um, where the difference is, what the half step that makes a difference is the difference. Um, that's just making um, something visible to you or clear to you that you already had a sense of before. So that's really a lot of what we're doing in um, the analysis of poetry. So here we have this off rhyme and a preposition. Time and fevers burn away. That's all, that's all still really lullaby meter. Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children. And then thoughtful is an unexpected word to have. So he's talking to a child um, and says, um, this is what will happen to you. Lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children. And the grave proves the child ephemeral. Um, so who is the thoughtful child here? Is he saying this will happen to you? Or is he saying this has happened to me? Is, he, is time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children and the grave proves the child ephemeral? Um, is he explaining why he's faithless? Or is he explaining what will happen to her? Is this the past? The reason I'm faithless is the time and I used to be a thoughtful child and now look at me here as an adult, or is it now while you're still a thoughtful child before time and fevers have burnt these things away from you, um, sleep. You're still innocent, so sleep. Um, what does ephemeral rhyme with? Does anyone know? Um, yeah, thoughtful internally, but beautiful is, is where that rhyme is going to be picked up. Again, that's a really sketchy rhyme, ephemeral and beautiful. Um, you don't think so? I think it's better than, uh, than from an arm. arm and from. Um, it is, but rhyme, rhyming on a last and not very um, stressed syllable like that, two long words which are rhyming on what is not the stressed syllable in either word. That is, beautiful is the stress, but the beaut is what's really stressed in the word beautiful. It's da, 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 ephemeral. So it's got the same sort of last three-syllable meter. Does everyone hear that? It takes a little bit of, of training of your ear to hear that. But if you were to rank the syllables in beautiful and ephemeral by stress, you would say beaut is the most stressed, full is the second most, it is the third most, right? Beautiful. Does everyone agree with that? It's like three, one, two. 
and ephemeral, the E in ephemeral would be the least stressed. It would be something like one ephemeral. So it would be something like one, four, two, three. Does everyone agree with that? Ephemeral. So it's still sketchy, but Auden-like to, to take two polysyllabic words, rhyme them on a last and only moderately stressed syllable. It, it's better than from an arm in some ways. Um, harder in a song, harder to put to music in a convincing way. In songs, you know, Tom Lehrer has that, has, do people know who Tom Lehrer is? Um, he has a great line about folk songs where uh, he says, and it does, I can't sing, luckily for, or unluckily for you. Doesn't matter if there are a few extra syllables in some of the lines, or if they don't exactly rhyme, um, and that's folk singing for you, lines not exactly rhyming with rhyme. Um, Gila. Um, so I was going to say, it sounds like the, the rhyme between ephemeral and beautiful is not so much of an off-rhyme because the vowel sounds don't match. They really match better than, than arm and from. Right. It's, it's just like the rhyme is off because it's almost bordering on like a feminine ending. Yes. As opposed to like arm and from because they're one syllable, they're equal. Explain a feminine ending to people. A feminine ending is when the, the, the end rhyme is unstressed. A masculine ending is where the end rhyme is stressed, so you hear it better. So um, what you will frequently get in rhymes is you'll have a rhyme that ends in something like the word um, rhyme and chime. Um, this is a line that ends with rhyme, and the following line with it will chime. Um, or you'll sometimes get a couplet will, which will say something like, um, what I'm doing here is rhyming, what you're hearing here is chiming. And um, rhyming and chiming rhyme, but what makes them rhyme is rhyme and chime. We don't generally, in fact, it's, it's, we really won't hear a rhyme between rhyming and canoeing. That is the ing at the end of rhyming and the ing at the end of canoeing. As unstressed syllables, they don't count as rhymes. Um, what makes a rhyme as a rhyme is a stressed syllable plus everything that follows. Um, in English, in other languages, the unstressed syllable, you can rhyme um, uh, uh, rhymic with chiming. And um, because the stresses are rhyming, the unstressed kind of kind of grace note after the last stress syllable doesn't matter. Um, alembic, no, alemb, no, forget it. Um, so, but in English we do demand for perfect rhymes that everything once the rhyme starts should be the same for both lines. Um, that's a demand in English but not in all languages. Um, so ephemeral and beautiful, um, the ulls rhyme. And they are stressed compared to the syllable that comes before them. A fem or ul, beautiful. Um, but nevertheless, the most stressed um, syllables in those words are fem and but. And they kind of swamp the stresses on the last syllables. Um, and so it feels a little bit precarious and fragile, that rhyme. Why is that good? Why is that a feature and not a bug, as we computer scientists say? Gila. Because it's, it's a way for um, the form to sort of echo the content and, and further the message of the poem. Because 
He's talking about how you know life is ephemeral and, and nothing lasts and everything is really precarious and and you know the the rhyme is also precarious so it's it's sort of um, functioning as um, a mirror of the actual content of the poem. Exactly. So beauty is ephemeral. That's a what that's part of what you're getting here is um, that it's fragile that it's that it's there but it doesn't but it's unstable. Um, what is love rhyming with, by the way? Wait, someone else. I'm curious as to how long it takes people. Yeah. Grave. Grave. Yeah. Does any, did anyone notice that love didn't seem to rhyme with anything, and then you had to work to figure out it rhymed with grave? So there's a question, why didn't we notice that? And then when we do notice it, does it feel like a rhyme? I would say of, the, of those rhymes, that's the one that least feels like a rhyme. Lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children. And the grave proves the child ephemeral. Um, I think it's worth noticing that it's interesting that the rhyme is there, but it takes a long time for us, that we actually have to figure out that that's the rhyme, that that's not a rhyme that is somehow happening spontaneously in our reading of the poem at all. Gila. Um, I think that that is sort of a disturbing rhyme in the sense that, like, you know, you don't expect rhyming words necessarily to have any kind of a relationship with each other thematically, but on the other hand, something as, as dramatic as love and grave, where one is so positive and one is so negative, mm -hmm. that's that's a little bit disturbing. And the other thing is I'm trying to figure out what the formal rhyme scheme is, if there is one, mm -hmm. because that, like when I first read the poem, I, I didn't pick up on that at all. It, it doesn't seem to follow any sort of traditional or formal rhyme scheme. It's sort of like random, unless I'm missing it, but it seems like it's sort of random half-rhyme. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it, it's, <coughs> I think the rhyme scheme is not formal, but I think every line is rhymed. Mm -hmm. And I think, however, what a beginning of the poem does, I didn't mean for us, are, are you guys interested in this? I didn't want to go too deeply into this question yet, but we could, in, in how, um, in the subtlety of the ways that Auden is patterning the rhymes. Is this something that people want to pursue a little while in this? Um, sort of, sort of not. Okay, I'll just, I'll try to say this briefly. Um, lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children and the grave proves the child ephemeral. Um, the way your brain is processing that the first time you read it is that this is a standard, con the first four lines you think of as kind of a standard <coughs> set of first four lines, which are rhymed X, A, X, A. That is to say, there are plenty of quatrains in which only the second, only the even numbered lines rhyme. Um, you will have been taught that this was A, um, a B, C, B. Um, is another way of describing it. But more technically, we, we write an X for unrhymed lines and then, uh, and then um, a beginning of the alphabet letter for rhymed lines. Um, so X's don't rhyme with each other. If a poem is rhymed um, X, A, X, A, that doesn't mean the two X's rhyme. 
they are total variables, and they, they're so variable that they can vary um, in the same equation. Um, well, they're both the same, these two stanzas. It's A, B, C, B um, for the first four. For the first four. Uh, wait, so A, a B, B, C, B, B, A are the first five lines of the first two stanzas. Right. Yeah. So um, it is regular. All these kind, well, not really regular. Right, but at some, but what's happening is you read the poem as, as part of you is, is figuring out that the rhyme scheme isn't quite what you thought it was. Um, so what you have is love arm away from grave goes back to away. Um, and then you realize, um, and then ephemeral day, which goes back to um, away again, um, and lie me beautiful. Um, and at some point, you realize that all those rhymes are lining, or all those lines are rhyming. All those rhymes are lining too, um, lining for the poem. All those all those lines are rhyming, and um, but you're already beyond the ones that you weren't sure about. So what he's really good at doing is is um, you could say orchestrating the process by which you are. Um, um, organizing the poem in your reading of it so that it happens, these, these things happen at a different speed and at different relative rates from the way they usually do in poems, which is that in a nursery rhyme, in a, in a lullaby, um, rockabye baby on the treetop, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock, when the brow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby cradle and all. And there's no point where we're saying, oh, the A lines aren't, the first lines, the odd lines aren't rhyming. Rockabye baby, I'm waiting for that maybe. Um, uh, when the wind blows, I'm waiting for its nose. Um, we just know immediately it's rockabye baby doesn't rhyme on the treetop when the wind blows. And as soon as we get to when the wind blows, we know that there's going to be no rhyme for baby, right? Um, so rockabye baby on the treetop, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. Are we waiting for a rhyme for breaks? No, um, because we already know from baby that, that those odd lines don't rhyme. Um, when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby, cradle and all. Only the evens rhyme. We're not saying to ourselves, even numbers. What we're, what we're doing is we're going through simply a very simple process of alternation. That's how we read a lot of very simple poetry. We alternate. Rockabye baby. Now turn on the expect a rhyme module in the second line on the, um, on the tree top. Expect a rhyme. Now turn it off. When the wind blows, no rhyme. The cradle will rock, rhyme. When the bow breaks, no. The cradle will fall, yes. And down will come baby, no. Cradle and all, yes. Um, just turning it on and off like that is the most natural thing in the world. Um, Marielle, you want to say something? Um, I was just wondering why he even bothered rhyming them in the first place. You're going to wait, like for me when I was reading this, by the time Grave had come along, I'd forgotten about love, so it didn't even strike me that it was rhyming with anything. Yeah. So I wonder why um, that is that what's happening is the part of your brain um, that, that processes poetry on a non-conscious level 
it's the same part of your brain that processes music on a non-conscious level. That is, it provides expectations to the more conscious part of your brain um, without the conscious part of your brain knowing how it got those expectations. Um, subliminal poetry and music both work. A lot of what they do, they do subliminally. Um, a way to put this, this is actually well demonstrated in music, and I think um, that it's something that um, people are working on demonstrating, and I'm pushing them to work on demonstrating in poetry. But in music, it's well demonstrated that um, some of what happens when you listen to music um, is happening mentally in a part of your brain that has no short-term memory at all. Um, that is to say, you're hearing a set of notes, or that is only short-term memory. You hear a set of notes, and then that part of your brain clears itself of the set of notes that you've heard um, just shortly after you've heard, let's say, a musical phrase. You hear the musical phrase, then you're cleared of that musical phrase. A higher processing part of your brain has a vaguer but more permanent sense of that musical phrase. Then when the phrase repeats, in a recapitulation or something like that. For some of your brain, it's not new. The higher part of your brain has a vaguer but a more permanent fix on that phrase. But for another lower part of your brain, it is new because it's short-term memory again, and that short-term memory has been totally emptied. And so what happens is the relationship between short-term memory and longer-term memory changes in the course of a musical piece. Something starts coming into your long-term memory. And then when your short-term memory presents it to your long-term memory again, the effect of that second presentation is different. So there's still novelty. You could say, look, if music is about recapitulating um, a theme, why recapitulate it? We've already heard the theme. We could say, oh, yeah, and then that theme would come again. Um, but part of your brain, it's always going to be fresh for even as another part of your brain it's not fresh for. And so there's a sort of subtly changing relationship between the part of your brain that hears something afresh and the part of your brain that already knows it and is going deeper into it. And that subtly changing relationship, I think that's true of any art that you concentrate on. If you look at a painting, the first time you see it, you get the whole gestalt. Then you look closely at details with the gestalt in your mind, with the whole painting in your mind, you look at details. And as you look from detail to detail, you're building up a larger sense of the whole painting in your mind. But that larger sense is kind of in a feedback loop with the details that you're looking at that start looking different as you look more closely at them. So that kind of looping way of processing we do in listening to music, for sure in looking at paintings, I'm sure, and in reading poems, I'm more than sure. So the point is that part of your brain is, has heard the VE sounds in love and grave, but the part of your brain that's keeping track of rhyme more explicitly doesn't hear that as a rhyme. But then what, it, what that part of your brain will hear away and grave as um, a candidate off rhyme or a candidate um, assonential rhyme, as they're called. That is when the vowels rhyme, but the consonants don't. Um, so we'll have, lay your sleep, sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm, 
Time and Fevers Burn Away, Individual Beauty from Thoughtful Children and the Grave Proves the Child Ephemeral. But in my arms will break of day. And then your brain will say, well, I don't really like away grave day as three rhymes because away and day are so good and grave isn't. So that kind of makes the word grave stand out a little bit for you because it was supposed to sort of rhyme with away, but now you know that it doesn't. None of this is occurring on a conscious level. It's just the words are echoing in the background in a way that they wouldn't echo if the rhymes were, cle were clearer. Um, there's something that's troubling you in the background because you still haven't put everything, the, put everything the way it is. There's something nagging at you subliminally about the poem. And that, that's the point. Do you think this is all bullshit or, or do you see that this might be true? I can see where it would be true. You can see where it's true, but you think it's bullshit. No. More or less. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't go quite that far, but okay. um, I think I have to like, work with that idea for a little bit. Well, that's what we have a semester. Okay, um, now that you know those lines, though, I think it makes a difference. Um, so, lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children, and the grave proves the child ephemeral. Um, notice that what that means then is that what proves that the child um, is only a child for a short time isn't adulthood, but the grave. That's a clue as to whether he's talking to a child or an adult. The grave proves the child ephemeral. Not, um, and voting age proves the child ephemeral, or graduation from college proves the child ephemeral, um, but dying proves the child ephemeral. Okay, just quickly, I, I know I said I'd go through this in quickly, but, but one, one fast question. What does that mean? How does the grave, what are the two possible um, readings of the poem to a child to an adult um, how do those affect your understanding of the phrase the grave proves the child ephemeral if it's written to a, an adult what does that mean that yeah just sort of more like kind of I guess you know assuming that this is a wife or a lover it's almost a kind of partnership saying you know you know you're you're, we're both getting older and we're both heading towards the grave together. Okay. And if it's to a child, how would the grave prove the child ephemeral to a child? I mean, if the poem is written to a child. I think there's a simple, actually a simple answer to this. Maya. I mean, like, a lot of kids die when they're really young. Okay. Instead of having, like, Okay, I think that that's one possibility. But the child seems to mean that um, the child grows up. The child grows up, um, and ha but how does the grave? How is death related to the child growing up? This I, I have a particular thing in mind. Yeah, that they're going to witness their parents' death. Yes, that is to say, you could say that when you stop being a child, for sure in your life is when your parents die. That's for sure the end of childhood. You could be 60 
but that for sure is the end of childhood. That's what Philip Roth writes about in um, his great book, The Anatomy Lesson. Um, is it's part it's part of the trilogy called Zuckerman Bound, and in that the character who's kind of based on Roth, Nathan Zuckerman. Do people read Philip Roth? Have you guys read anything by him? Well, there's a character in his books who's who's semi autobiographical named Nathan Zuckerman. And um, in the last of the three novels that make up the, the trilogy called Zuckerman Bound, um, his mother, Zuckerman's mother dies. And um, it begins with um, Zuckerman himself in terrible back pain. And the first line of the novel is, um, when he is sick, a boy always wants his mother. Now, Zuckerman is in his 50s. And um, the problem is that his mother dies, and that's the end of childhood for him. In his 50s, but the end of childhood. So I think what Jesse is saying is, is right as another reading. The grave, my grave, when I die, that's going to be the end of the absolute security you feel, little child, as you lay your sleeping head on my faithless arm. That would mean something like faithlessness means I am telling you that you have absolute security in my parental arms, but I know that I'm lying. You don't. That's a parental, um, a terrible parental feeling, is to know that um, it's a lie but an important lie for a child to think that she has total security in um, parental presence and in parental um, um, support. Gillen. There's a really amazing poem on this theme. I think it's by Edna St. Vincent Millay. It's called Childhood is a Kingdom Where Nobody Dies. Uh -huh. And it's, it's so beautiful and so heartbreaking. I mean, it basically says the same thing, that, um, that you stop being a child at the point at which someone close to you dies, particularly a parent. And I can't remember the exact lines, but she goes on about how um, maybe when you're a child, you know, um, a distant relative dies, a grandmother yeah. or a cousin, or maybe even a pet dies. And she says when a pet dies, you know, you have a little funeral and you cry for the pet. But she says, you know, three months later, six months later, you don't wake up in the middle of the night and say, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. And it, it's so evocative. That That's great. Um, can you post that to Latte? Sure. Okay, that'd be that'd be great. I think I think you can. I think it's on now, okay. so you should just be able to do it. Yeah. I, mean, <clears throat> I realize that the point of close reading is to make absolutely no progress and yes. an infinite amount of meaning. Right. But we've really only looked at one stanza of this poem in the so. past three days or so. Yeah. Um, I really don't think we're getting a full picture of the poem. I mean, I agree <laughs> with everything you're saying. Yes, we're looking at the so detail. There's so much more the here that we really yeah. haven't even started to look at. So what do you? Okay, so let's just go through it. Now let's just you go through mind. it. Yeah. So lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. Time and fevers burn away individual beauty from thoughtful children. And the grave proves the child ephemeral. Um, again, the, there is a question, do we stress thoughtful children or thoughtful children? Are all children thoughtful? Or is this something that happens to that subset of children who are thoughtful? Just a question. Um, but in my arms till break of day, let the living creature lie. Um, so the but there means it may not last, but at least till morning, let the living creature lie. Um, the grave proves the child ephemeral, but right now she's living. We talked about that a couple of days ago. 
mortal, guilty, but to me the entirely beautiful. Mortal and guilty because she's a child who will grow up, guilty of her own um, an inability to evade becoming a guilty person after break of day, um, or guilty because she's an adult like me, but is now asleep, and to me the entirely beautiful. Soul and body, now this is actually a little bit tough, but I'll, I'll explain the, the grammar here. Soul and body have no bounds to lovers as they lie upon her tolerant, enchanted slope in their ordinary swoon. Um, the her there, we don't know who that is yet. So soul, soul and body have no bounds. To lovers, as they lie upon her tolerant, enchanted <coughs> slope in their ordinary swoon, grave the vision Venus sends of supernatural sympathy, universal love and hope. So it's really important to pay attention to the punctuation here. The colon after bounds. Soul and body have no bounds. Um, that's a simple statement. It looks like, as you're reading it, that it's going to say soul and body have no bounds to lovers. Um, but it doesn't mean that. It means there are no bounds to either soul or body, or no, no bounds between soul and body. Here, let me illustrate that simple sentence. Soul and body have no bounds. Here's an example. V Venus sends a grave vision to lovers as they lie upon her tolerant, enchanted slope in their ordinary swoon, a grave vision of supernatural sympathy, a vision of universal love and hope. So soul and body have no bounds. Venus, for example, will send a vision to lovers lying upon her enchanted slope of supernatural sympathy. Um, of universal love and hope, as though when lovers are post-coital, and that's um, what their ordinary swoon would um, lead to and be the beginning of, um, they feel completely in love. But that's one example and only one of how soul and body have no bounds. Um, here's another example. While an abstract insight wakes among the glaciers and the rocks, the hermit's carnal ecstasy. So even someone who lives in entire solitude among glaciers and rocks as a hermit, nevertheless, even that hermit, um, a thinker who wants to be left alone to think, feels a kind of sexual ecstasy in the abstract insight that he gets looking at the simple materials of the world, glaciers and rocks, even that leads to ecstasy. So that is an example of how soul and body have no bounds for living people. And yet, something does happen at the stroke of midnight. Certainty, fidelity on the stroke of midnight pass like vibrations of a bell and fashionable madmen raise their pedantic, boring cry. So I want you to sleep here till break of day, but also at midnight, all these good things start disappearing. Um, what's the fairy tale illusion here? Cinderella. 
Cinderella. Yeah, at midnight, the coach turns into a pumpkin. Um, things always, magic ends at midnight. Um, and then what happens? Fashionable madmen raise their pedantic, boring cry. That would be some version of adult life, politics, um, social life, um, um, getting ahead in society, social status, um, deciding that national status really matters and that you have to invade France and Belgium to um, overcome the um, humiliation your country has experienced 20 years earlier. This is only 1937, but it's um, what people are starting to worry about, is what Germany is doing. Um, maybe Auden's fam most famous line is from his poem, um, September 1st, 1939, um, which is about the beginning, the German beginning of the Second World War. Um, where he talks about this being the end of a low, dishonest decade. Um, and the low, dishonest decade has led to um, the Allies' inability to stop Germany from um, looking like it's going to bring the end of the world down on the world. Um, so Auden is always thinking of what's happening politically. And, but living politically and seeing how terrible political ambition and political life is, that's, that's adulthood for you. That's when you get involved with adulthood. So at midnight, you grow up, let's say. Um, and what do you hear? You hear fashionable madmen raising their pedantic, boring cry. Um, and then he agrees every farthing of the cost. Everyone know what a farthing is? What is it, Maya? It's a small English coin. It's a quarter of a penny, um, farth as in a fourth. Um, so it's half of a halfpence. Um, um, England doesn't use that, that coinage anymore, um, but they still did in the 30s. So a farthing is, a, is the tiniest bit of money that's in circulation. Every farthing of the cost, all the, dre all the dreaded cards foretell shall be paid. Um, everything that you have to pay as a living being, everything that's in the cards, in the tarot cards, in the cards simply in the sense of that's not in the cards for you, this is. Everything will have to be paid. Um, but even so, but from this night, not a whisper, not a thought, not a kiss nor look be lost. So all of that's true. But given that it's all true, everything has to be paid. All of this will cost. Being alive costs you your death. But at least since we're paying for it, there's a kind of prayer and demand here, or a prayer and assurance. This night, it will all be perfect, even if we'll pay at break of day. What will happen in the future? Future beauty, midnight, vision dies. Why the singular verb, by the way? Beauty, midnight, vision. Why not die, Maya? Um, I mean, each of them are happening separately. Each of them are happening separately. So beauty dies, vis midnight dies, vision dies. Um, OK. It, every, yeah.
okay, so beauty, that is to say midnight vision. But there is a comma after midnight. Um, yeah. Or they're all, all those three are um, like talking about one other thing that's not there? Yeah. Or all those three are simply the same thing. That is beauty, I mean vision, I mean midnight, dies. Um, three names for the same thing. Beauty, mid, beauty, midnight, vision, friends, Romans, countrymen. Um, three, these are, these are called co-referring terms. They refer to the same thing. Beauty, midnight, vision, dies. Let the winds of dawn that blow softly round your dreaming head such a day of welcome show I and knocking heart may bless find our mortal world enough. So even though it's all going to die, at least let your life be a decent life so that you will find our mortal world enough. How would you find our mortal world enough? Noons of dryness find you fed by the involuntary powers. Nights of insult let you pass, watched by every human love. So even though starting tomorrow morning, the external world is going to be pretty cruddy, Nevertheless, even though the noons will be dry, the world will be mortal, and subsequent nights will be nights of insult, nevertheless, my prayer for you is that what you're getting now in your childhood, in the fact that I'm praying for you, will sustain you through the difficulties to come, will give you involuntary powers, that is powers that you don't have to summon up, that, that will be there for you, will give you those involuntary powers so that you can get through them because love is doing that for you. What is love rhyming with at the end, by the way? Enough. enough. Yeah. So we go from love to grave to love to enough. Um, there's a great line by James Merrill. We'll end with this, and we will definitely talk about the two nurses' songs on Wednesday, but also read the two Casabianca poems and the poem that Gil will put up. Um, but there's a great line in Merrill um, that he wrote when he was dying in which he describes life as a fortune lent on such fair terms. So you have to pay back every farthing of the fortune that was lent to you when you became a living being. But the terms are fair. They're not generous, but they're not stingy either. It's a fortune lent on such fair terms, which is, and fair is such an amazingly ambiguous word there, knife edge word. You have to pay it all back, but you don't have to pay back more than you were lent. And you were lent a fortune, but you do have to pay the entire fortune back. I think that's what Auden is saying also. OK, we'll go straight to Blake on Wednesday, believe it or not. Don't even bring this poem in, because if you do, we might be tempted. I might be tempted.